0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants Podcast, the official podcast of IndefensiblePlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? What is it going to take to grow plants on the moon? Well, thanks to my guests and his colleagues, you're going to find out. Today, we're hearing from Dr. Robert Furl, who, if you've been listening to the podcast since the beginning, you will recognize from a previous episode where we talked about plants in space. Well, today we're going to be hearing from him about an experiment that he and his colleagues did using moon soil, or as they call it, regolith, to grow plants. That's right. We now know we can grow plants in moon regolith. This is super exciting, and along the way we're going to hear about the history of plants in space and just how much of a role they have played in space exploration since the beginning but I don't want to steal any of his thunder. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Robert Furl. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Robert Furl, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It has been... Quite a while. So, for those that haven't listened to the entire back catalog, how about we start off with an introduction? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Hi, my name's Rob Furl. I'm a professor and scientist at the University of Florida. Uh, I've worked with plants historically, and my current, and for the last maybe 25 years, major interest is plants in space. Plants in support of human exploration and plants in very strange environments.
0: (laughs) Well, when it comes to plants, I would say there isn't a stranger environment than literally anywhere off this planet. So what got you going down that road? I mean, where did all of this interest start for you?
1: That's a really, really good question. How would somebody that's a molecular biologist and a plant biologist find out or even learn about or yet alone be captured by the notion of looking at plants in space, mm-hmm. looking at plants on the moon? Very, very good question. So the, the, and I think there are two, two answers. One of them is philosophical and one of them is practical. Um, so I'll start <laughs> with the practical first. Perfect. <laughs> um, as, as we became, Um, again, sort of a scientific space-faring people, Um, most importantly, as we entered the space shuttle era and then into the space station era, it became important to think long-term about how we would support astronauts in space, on long journeys and in extraterrestrial habitats. So there was a notion, there was an idea And it's a long-standing idea, actually, that plants are going to be a part of our long-term space exploration agenda simply because, just like they do here on Earth, um, they provide oxygen, they provide food, they clean our water, um, and they basically are the other half of our ecosystem that keeps us alive on the Earth. So it just makes sense that we'll take plants with us when we leave the Earth. So that's number one. Number one, a part of the practical things is when people first started taking plants into space, they looked like they were in stress. (laughs) And I grew up um, scientifically working on plant stress as a way to understand gene expression. Mm. So those are the two practical reasons for thinking about plants in space and other places. The philosophical one and the one that I actually (laughs) identify with most is Plants, like all of terrestrial biology, are evolutionarily maximized and designed to live here on the Earth. What makes us, what makes anybody think that they're capable of living on another planet? <laughs> that they're capable of living somewhere where they have none of the evolutionary tools to to exist there. So for me, this is sort of a deeply philosophical scientific interest one that is that is driven by sort of fundamental biological principles and in a way it's our way as plant biologists to contribute to the question of what are the limits of life Hmm. and you know might there be life out there one way to answer that is how far can we take our life
0: (laughs) it's true i absolutely love those perspectives and i feel like when you take away everything that supports us, when you put someone into the vacuum of space, nowhere does it become more important, our reliance on the biosphere and especially our reliance on plants. So I love just the element of exploration, the questions you get to ask and, and the ways you get to test these ideas. It's, it's absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you think so because it certainly has has consumed me <laughs> and and sort of fired my scientific interest for the last half of my career.
0: That's absolutely wonderful. And when we think about space exploration, it's easy to kind of fall into the the satellites, the Apollo missions, and not really realize sort of some of what was going on behind the scenes, or just not getting the headlines like just going to the moon actually does. And in correspondence I've had with you in the past, it is very evident that plants have played a huge role in human exploration of space for a very long time.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that I absolutely enjoy talking about and and enjoy having the both the privilege and the opportunity to talk about is is something that occurred 50 years ago that certainly the younger among us might not be aware of, and even those of us that are old enough to remember the Apollo era having lived through it, it either didn't appreciate at the time, <laughs> or it's sort of lost in the fog of history. And that is, as you alluded to, the, the absolutely important role that plants played in the Apollo era, um, seldom talked about, seldom appreciated, and, and this is their story. Um, Boy, back when we were first getting ready to land on the moon, there was a fear and anxiety, (laughs) um, much like there is now about bringing samples back from Mars, in that those samples might contain harmful Mm. viruses extraterrestrial bacteria, things that would come back from outer space and destroy our biosphere, maybe kill all the humans and just leave the plants, or maybe kill all the plants and the humans would die off because of that. Who knows? Because, you know, it's so strange and wonderful and awful and awesome all at the same time. And there, there's a wonderful movie from that era, era called uh, The Andromeda Strain.
0: Oh, nice. Which,
1: which preceded our actual landing to the moon, but really highlighted this this socio-political scientific fear that we could bring something back from outside our biosphere and actually ruin the world. Hmm. Um, and so, one of the things that, again, you have to look in the history books to see is the the first... Apollo missions up through Apollo 14, when those folks came back from the moon, they were isolated, they were quarantined, they were put into an Airstream trailer for two, two and a half weeks, just to make sure that the astronauts, A, weren't sick themselves, and B, wouldn't transmit any of these harmful, you know, extraterrestrial bugs (laughs) to the rest of the humans that were taking care of the astronauts. That's, that's that's appreciated and people can sort of remember that. And once it was shown that the quarantine periods weren't needed, then the astronauts simply came home and didn't have to, you know, wear masks and special <laughs> suits and be hidden away for a while.
2: Right.
1: What is another part of that entire scenario is that the lunar soil samples, the lunar regolith and rocks, when they came back from the moon, they were sealed hermetically while in space, while on the moon. They were not opened until they were safely ensconced in the Lunar Receiving Lab, which was actually deep underground at um, Johnson Space Center. And they were opened up behind what was basically the 60s equivalent of a biosafety level four <laughs> containment facility. Wow! So they, they were handled as if they were extraordinarily toxic huh. and during that time uh, lunar dust was um, uh, sprinkled on animals on on worms on mice on on algae on bacteria on every you know just <laughs> you can imagine the number of things that were exposed to, to the lunar s- samples just to see if there were viruses or bacteria. <laughs> right. so, but one of the things that they, that they absolutely did a great job of, and the leading botanist at the time there was a fellow by the name of Charles Walkinshaw. Um, he grew radishes and all sorts of plants and did what a plant pathologist would do, huh. uh, rubbed Rub the leaves with lunar soil to abrade them and to see if there was any transmission of, of viruses or bacteria. Sprinkle lunar dust on the seeds to see if it inhibited germination. You know, they did the kinds of things you would do if you were asking the question, is the lunar soil harmful from a, from a sort of toxic organism point of view? Hmm. But they never, ever got the chance. Because of the need to preserve most all the lunar samples. They never got the chance to actually use the lunar regolith as soil and huh. try to grow plants in them. So so for 50 years there's been this notion that, you know, somebody's got to grow plants in lunar soil. <laughs> right. But but absolutely plants played a key role back in that, in that Apollo era in proving that. You know there was there's no you know andromeda strain bug <laughs> on the moon that's waiting to destroy the earth
0: i love that it's it's you know as a sci-fi buff myself it's it's comforting to know that some of this is rooted in reality and you get a perspective when you see what happens after the achievement you know the stuff that makes the headlines we did it we went to space or we did it we landed on the moon. A lot of things happened after that. Some of them very important. And what's more important than making sure we're not going to completely destroy our biosphere in the process? You know, we think of UFOs and little green men as kind of ha, 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 off to the side fringe stuff. But it's so comforting to know that even back then we were taking the threat of potential extraterrestrial organisms or life very seriously.
1: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. And and if you if you pay attention now, even though. Return of samples from Mars that will be done by robots is years, if not decades away. They're collecting the samples now. And the discussions of how those Martian soil samples will be handled is a very active one.
0: Huh, Fascinating. And so I appreciate the original Apollo missions probably came back with very little regolith or, or samples to work with and so like you said they had to sequester them away they had to protect them study them in other ways what did it take to eventually get enough to start playing around with i mean what is what does that look like because i would imagine any mission into space is limited by weight and capacity for any element of the mission how do you start to think about going up there getting something and bringing it back there are so many logistical challenges to that i'd imagine
1: yep Yep, and yep, but <laughs> but the sort of the the practical truth of the matter is is that there's hundreds of pounds of lunar samples oh. that, that were brought back over the course of the missions that went to the moon, and as lunar missions progressed all the way up into Apollo 17, the amount of rocks, hundreds of pounds of rocks and soil that they brought back got bigger during the mission profile. So just in terms of total bulk, there's probably what you might think of as a reasonable amount available. Hmm. Uh, But as a biologist, I have to tell you that while those samples came back, they didn't come back to do biology. They came back (laughs) to understand where the moon came from, What was its origin? What's its future? And what's the geology of the moon? Mm. And one of the things about even the idea of growing plants in in lunar regolith would be, you know, plants, once they get into the soil, they change it. So, once you introduce biology to these samples, they're never going to be pure lunar samples again. Mm. So, the... The bigger logistical challenge, to get back to your question and and sort of answer it sideways, is when does the lunar community figure that it's okay, maybe even a good idea, to get biology back involved in lunar studies? Right, And that, I think, is all happening because of the Artemis missions and our national goal of returning to the moon with bigger rockets and better time on the surface and the chance for bringing even more home. So I think, I think, you know, the idea of loosening up the pocketbook of (laughs) samples, um, it's the right time for that.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I'd never really thought of sort of the prioritization of the science, let alone the logistics of doing it in the first place. And so The main reason, as we've kind of been hinting at and circling the drain on here, is someone has finally taken a stab at growing plants in Lunar Regolith, and one of those people is you.
1: (laughs) Yep, absolutely true.
0: So... I think about when it comes time to get supercomputing time at a university, that's a line. You have to apply. You have to have the right proposal together. That in and of itself is a logistical challenge. That's something here on Earth that we made that is not necessarily that special. It's amazing, but not necessarily that special. How do you begin to even apply to start doing those biological experiments on lunar regolith? What what was that process like?
1: (laughs) Boy... (laughs) <laughs> for for anybody new in their career, I think it's an interesting story to latch on to the time frames I'm going to talk about. Cool. <laughs> and, the, and the social science involved in, in getting to a, 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 a place where this could come true. So basically, about 13 years ago, the broader lunar community started talking a little bit about um, you know, if we ever do go back to the moon, what would we do, and what we would do as scientists. And a few of us from the biology community um, started going to meetings of what was called the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group, where they were putting together sort of front-range, long-term scenario ideas about what might science do if we ever did decide to go back to the moon. And so biologists began to be a part of that community, and i got to tell you, we're really welcomed into that lunar science community. Good. Um, So 13, 14 years ago, we wrote a review paper um, published in Astrobiology that went over everything that we knew, could find in the literature, and even could find in the archives at Johnson Space Center, about plants and their relationship to the lunar samples hmm. um, and so that started us down the road of wondering hey now that we know after doing all this review work that that plants have never been grown in lunar soil um, let's ask for some samples <laughs> so we we did that like you know what I'm saying like 13 years ago <laughs> and they said no, oh, no. <laughs> and, and it just wasn't the right time, or we weren't—we didn't have quite the right experiment, or something. Three years later, we asked again. Four years later, we asked again, <laughs> and finally, um, and he, and just just as we do with our other kinds of science, each time you write a proposal, you write it better. You figure out what what the what the other things you could do to convince the scientific community, and in this case, the lunar curation group that it was both time and sort of scientifically relevant to give out the samples for this. Um, Yeah, in 2019, we wrote a successful proposal. So it took multiple iterations and multiple times. And as I mentioned before, I think the notion that we're actually going back to the moon now, so... Maybe we do need to know about how biology interacts with lunar samples more, (laughs) and maybe we do have the opportunity to replace any samples we might lose to the biology experiment. So, so the logistics involved and the timeframes involved may seem daunting, (laughs) but (laughs) over the course of a career, it's actually I think pretty typical for 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 a front end sort of long range experiment to, to take shape. Um, yeah. And that's how we got there.
0: Amazing, really, really important perspectives and like persistence and learning from every iteration. Like you said, improving on the process, seeing where the weaknesses are, trying to improve your process, because really I guess all of those negative reviews made your attempts even stronger, let alone you know just the convincing part of it. You wanted to make sure whatever you were gonna do was gonna be impactful. Do what you needed it to do, but also, you know, provide the data necessary to to do the analyses.
1: Right, right, and and uh, sort of tying a few of these threads together. Among the things that had to sort of come together correctly or convincingly in the proposal was how much sample we were asking for. In other words, don't ask for too much, <laughs> but ask for enough. <laughs> Which samples to ask for? Do you want Apollo 17, Apollo 12, Apollo 11? Well, you know, which ones do you want? You should be intelligent about knowing Hmm. what's in those lunar soils. And then how are you going to extract the most science that you can the first time you grow plants in lunar soil? And so all that stuff, I think, finally came together, much like, you know, other good proposals finally come together.
0: Awesome. And so which Apollo mission did you pick and why, if there is a why?
1: There, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Yeah, there's a why. Awesome. And and again, this particular why gets down to um, a a very practical question. And it takes me back to some of my favorite parts of lunar exploration (laughs) history. On Apollo 17, the last uh, Apollo mission to visit the moon, that was a mission that included a fellow by the name of Harrison Schmidt, who was um, a geologist and the only scientist, Hmm. the only sort of purebred scientist to go to the moon. Oh, wow. Um, He and the commander of the mission, Gene Cernan, had a really nice... Souped up lunar rover. Um, but as they were getting ready to start their lunar roving, Gene Cernan caught his his uh spacesuit on the fender, oh, no. I think the right rear fender of the lunar rover and broke it off. Oh, no. So now all of a sudden the the fender that would keep the dust from blowing up around, you know, rooster tailing around the lunar module. <laughs> Um, oh, geez, now what are they going to do? So they fixed that, not by putting the fender back on, but by using the cover of a notebook and some binder clips to, uh, to make a makeshift sort of fender for that, for that wheel. So naturally, that fender didn't work as good as <laughs> the other fenders. And what happened was a lot of dust from all around their traverses of the, of the Apollo 17 landing site, accumulated in a haphazard fashion in one of the crevices back in the back of the lunar rover. <laughs> so this, of all the samples collected on the moon, this particular sample, this bulk sample, is not made from a shovel full or a handful of rocks. It's been collected from everywhere. So from a <laughs> geologist perspective, it lacks something important, and that's the provenance of where it was collected. Ah. So this is sort of random lunar dust. Huh. And and therefore, it's it's used for many kinds of things where you don't really need to know exactly where it came from, but it's still lunar stuff. <laughs> that's what we asked for. Wow. The, we asked for some of the stuff that we thought was... Uh, I don't know, not least important to geologists, but maybe um, the most sort of give out bull <laughs> that, that was there. And so that, that was our initial ask, was for four grams, that's all, oh, four grams of Apollo 17 sample 7051. <laughs> And that's the one that we identified that came from the lunar rover that was there only because Gene Cernan broke off the <laughs> the fender of the lunar rover.
0: Wow. Amazing. I love that backstory. And <laughs> just goes to show you, as Bob Ross says, no accidents, just some happy mistakes.
1: <laughs> yep. 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 Amazing. And so to round out that story um, a little bit more and to and to sort of celebrate what happens when good science um, is sort of appreciated by not only the people that think they're doing good (laughs) science, but also the people that are reviewing and contributing. Once, um, Once our proposal was basically positively reviewed, they said, listen, this sample from Apollo 17 cool you can have some but what you really need to do is you need to look at a few samples sorry for the light
0: oh no that's impressive
1: (laughs) (laughs) you need to look at some samples from the from some of the other apollo sites because they are different geologically Hmm. and so um they worked with us to identify samples from Apollo 11, the very first one, and Apollo 12, the second one, to go along with our Apollo 17 ask. Wow. So we got four grams. That's enough to grow four Arabidopsis plants <laughs> from each of those three Apollo missions. Nice. So So in the end, they gave us what to us seemed like a lot of material, um, but still... Is not very much when you're going to try to grow some plants.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And so you get the material. That's incredible in and of itself. I mean, I can't even imagine holding regolith in my hand or, you know, getting in a room with it. That's just so cool to think about. But now you got to grow plants in it. You mentioned Arabidopsis, this wonderful little mustard, a model organism, has done amazing things in science and continues to do things in science. You're not setting up a raised bed uh, or row crop agriculture here, how do you start to design a growing experiment to do this in a way that will work, hopefully, and, and give you the kind of information and data you need?
1: Wonderful, wonderful question. And And basically, it also outlines this 12-year trajectory of improving our proposal and our approach to the point where we could answer that question to the reviewers (laughs) in a way that made some sense so basically what we what we ended up developing and my collaborator Annalisa paul is largely responsible for this um particular aspect is we 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 opted for just plain old laboratory 48 well plate nice in, and in part, that's because if you put a gram, almost a gram of we were doing our practice stuff with lunar soil simulant, uh, which is available uh, from NASA, hmm. that will give you uh, sort of like a soil bed of about a half a centimeter, maybe a centimeter deep. Okay. All right. So, so that gives you the geometry to where you can handle a gram of sample. That layer of lunar sample sits on top of a membrane that keeps all the lunar sample separate from some rock wool underneath that. So, so now what you can envision is rock wool at the bottom, uh, membrane, and then lunar sample at the top. Okay. Because remember, we got a keep all the lunar samples separate so we can give it back. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we can't lose it. We can't flush it down the sink. And we've got, to, we've got to look for every speck of it. No pressure. And then at the bottom of each well, we drilled a hole so that water and nutrients could come up from the bottom. And much like um, subsurface irrigation, you, we would flood the plates from the bottom and give water up through the soil up through the rock wool and soil column to provide water and nutrients.
0: Wow. <laughs> that is quite the setup and, you know, kudos to anyone with a steady enough hand to pull that off and and keep it regulated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. And just <laughs> again as a brief aside, when one is thinking about doing something for the very first time, nothing to go by no <laughs> real clue um you do a lot of practice and you set up stuff and you s- do things and you you measure out you practice pouring it in you 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 open up tubes you pretend that's the lunar soil and you weigh it out <laughs> on the scale and you tap it down into these little things i just described and you wet them and everything works because you've practiced and practiced but Holy cow, when you are holding the moon in your hand, <laughs> your hand shakes. Oh,
0: man. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's like, no, don't sneeze. Yeah. No, don't drop it because it's A, worth a lot of money, and B, you, your reputation would be yeah. gone completely if you just threw it on the floor because you're never, ever going to get it back.
0: Ooh. Be cool, be cool, be cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But... But I got to tell you, it was, it was intensely anxious, but it was a blast as oh, well. I I mean, just, I mean, just imagine how much, how much fun it would be to sit there and say, "You're holding the moon." Yeah. This is something that Neil and Buzz picked up while they were there.
0: <laughs> Exhilarating! I don't even think comes close to that feeling. So that's that's remarkable. <laughs> but you know, the, the thing about gonna we're gonna grow plants in this we're gonna try at least you know we kind of get spoiled because biology really does affect soil and and when you go outside even in the most mineral dry soils there's an organic component there hypothetically unless we got something horribly wrong on the moon uh should have absolutely none of that so you're basically starting with what i'd consider the base of a good succulent mix i guess
1: (laughs) yep yep and and again, based on the fact that the geologists had provided a a good mineralogical profile, we knew we knew what we absolutely would have to add in terms of nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had we had no idea whether the sort of the more physical characteristics of the lunar soil, let alone the strange chemistry of the lunar <laughs> soils what that would do f- for the interaction with plants um, just sort of broadly speaking the lunar dust that's been on the surface of the moon the longer it's been on the surface of the moon the more it's interacted with not only cosmic rays but solar wind and that deposits all kinds of interesting things in there mm. and it, it's got very sharp glass, and that's one of the reasons why lunar samples and lunar soils are are difficult to work with because they're very abrasive. They have sharp edges. They have needle-like things. They have this stuff called nanophase iron, which doesn't hmm. basically exist on the Earth. Everything on the Earth has been weathered to one degree or another. That stuff has never been weathered at all. So, <laughs> In addition to the chemistry, there's also the physical characteristics of, of that soil that make it, again, sort of extraterrestrially strange hmm. to any biology trying to interact with it.
0: Weird. I had not even considered that, but, I mean, it makes sense. It's a, despite being made of similar molecules i guess their interactions with the world around it uh you know our atmosphere changes thing yeah i never stopped to think about how different the physical and chemical makeup would be from just being in that vacuum and not having an atmosphere to generate a climate so a <laughs> arabidopsis great choice what happens you sow the seeds and then you wait and and you know you go through some control and <laughs> what was that process like <laughs>
1: Oh yeah and I and I, I don't mean to to just sort of laugh but it is so fun to think back on exactly the the time frame that you're talking about because again we we had we had just shaken our hands and quelled our anxieties and we got these we've got four seeds three or four seeds planted in each one of those wells I described as well as some um wells that are filled with the lunar soil simulant that we knew Arabidopsis would grow on mm. from our previous experiments. We put that in a in a growth room. Um, anybody that's done plant science will have some familiarity with a, a walk-in growth room. We had LED lights and we had a controlled atmosphere, but it wasn't a sterile environment. Our, sure. our goal was to set it up maybe not unlike what a lunar laboratory might look like and if astronauts <laughs> went out on the moon and grabbed some stuff and brought it in and we're going to do it what would what would it be like so we took the plates with the seeds you know sown on each of those wells put them under their lights in these crystal clear containers and you know fancy LED lights it looks very scientific you know and all that kind of <laughs> stuff and then then you walk away right you go okay godspeed we, we put the seeds out there i wonder what's gonna happen <laughs> and we just went basically with under the notion that every day we'd go and photograph them and find out what happened and basically about two days in we looked in there and my goodness on every sample every seed had germinated wow. so <laughs> So up until, you know, the first few days, like, like day six, each of those little wells had three to four Arabidopsis seedlings sprouted in there and seemingly doing just fine.
0: Amazing. And, and when you saw those first cotyledons, I, I can't even think or begin to think how that must've felt in that moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's difficult to describe other than, <laughs> goodness, it's, I mean, it's like the James Webb Space Telescope. This is the first time any human being has looked upon these things. Wow. And and I know that sounds very sort of over the top, but I mean, <laughs> okay. how many times in one's career can you say, I'm looking at something that no human has seen before? <laughs> plants growing on lunar soil
0: uh well you and 99.9 percent of the world uh yeah i think that stands pretty true so (laughs) that's remarkable
1: yeah so after those three to four seedlings in each you know they germinated that that basically told us that there was nothing in the lunar soils and opposed as opposed to what i told you happened in the 60s, mm. not just a little sprinkling of lunar soil. These seeds were in direct contact right. for days with lunar soil. They germinated, they sprouted, and then we. the idea was to thin out some of the seedlings to the point where you had one sort of signature plant in each well. Mm. And then we'd watch them go from there seedling stage up to rosettes and doing you know basically becoming real plants at that point (laughs) and that's that's where things started to get really interesting from a plant biology perspective because some of the plants did really well some of them not so good okay and basically there were sort of two kinds of observations one is that on the lunar samples that were oldest the ones that had been on the surface of the moon the longest and that was apollo 11 those plants really didn't do too well Hmm. they got you know they they accumulated anthocyanins they were small they were squinchy they were they were clearly under significant stress but Several in the Apollo 12 samples and in the Apollo 17 samples grew remarkably similar to mm-hmm. the ones in the lunar soil simulant. So basically, we saw two kinds of reactions. Either the plants got you know, their roots down in and made a good attempt at growing, or else they sort of didn't get a good attempt going hmm. and, and basically suffered a lot. And in the molecular biology where we did gene expression over every plant that was um, on lunar soil and compared it to the, the terrestrial simulant, they they look very much, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, like plants that are on high salt oh. soils or on heavy metal soils or on places where there's oxidative stress for whatever reason. Okay, And it's pretty clear that that molecular biology is teaching us basically what the plants have to go through to try to survive in lunar soils. Huh. It's also teaching us how we're going to have to, if we want to get serious about growing plants for, you know, supporting our astronauts and our colonies, we're going to have to mitigate and help that soil out a little bit.
0: Right. Wow. I yeah. Reading those results, it, it was shocking. And it, it was one of those things that you start just your your head races. And I can imagine in the moment before, you know, I'm reading, the, I have the luxury of reading the work you've done. You are trying to figure out what's going on, you and your colleagues. You mentioned age of the sample might have had something to do with it, but it, what really was, could you drill into sort of the differences between those soil samples or regolith samples that, uh, could explain why some were super stressed and some did okay with amendments. Obviously,
1: yeah. The answer is no. I think. <laughs> awesome. I mean, I think this is this is for the next level and the next set of experiments is to try to get a uh, sort of a deeper understanding of and and I'll get back to sort of one of the broader philosophical things that draws me to this work. Sure. Is just because the plants are expressing genes that are associated with salt stress, just because they're expressing genes that are associated with metal stress or reactive oxygen stress, does that mean that reactive oxygen species and metals are in the soil? Or, and here's the philosopher of me talking, (laughs) or, or because that's a strange and novel substrate for plants to interact with, are they simply doing the best they can with hmm. the toolbox that they have available? And again, getting back to the idea of evolutionary preparedness, um, <laughs> is that an appropriate reaction or not? Boy, I'd like to know that. I'd I'd like to, to do more experiments to tease out and to better understand the notion of what the molecular biology data are telling us.
0: Huh. Yeah, I mean, any good scientific endeavor should open up many, many new questions. But when it comes to truly novel growing conditions, I mean, you hear about urban ecology, novel environments. I mean, it's still our planet. It's still where plants evolved, right? And and like mm-hmm. you said, you're out there in a new place, a new environment, new everything. Yeah, it, it's just like we would struggle to go, well, I guess I'm just going to take a shot in the dark and hope it works. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And then... Um, I, I absolutely do sort of believe in a couple of fundamental, um, sort of outputs from the experiments is that plants can grow right. in lunar soil. That by That's itself huge. Is, is, let's not forget that we didn't know that <laughs> right. when we started and now we know that we also absolutely knew that there was a possibility that the physical nature let alone the mineralogy of the lunar soils would cause plants some issues they did Mm -hmm. now we have to ask ourselves if we're going to be sort of the lunar botanist the lunar equivalent (laughs) of mark watney on mars what do you have to add to the soil to make it be what you need it to be and one of those you know, one of those things is, as i pretty sure you mentioned, that you put some organic stuff in there. <laughs> and getting back to the whole idea of how you would support humans on another planet, well, one of the things you would be recycling is their um, organic waste. Right. So, what? Be- <laughs> quite honestly, what better way to mitigate the soil?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, boy, we produce it. <laughs> so- yep. But I mean, this is so incredible because, A, it's never been done. Now we know. And and as you mentioned in the beginning, our history of space exploration is tied with our understanding of plants and how plants are going to perform up there. And if we have a future in space exploration, it's got to involve plants. And you and your colleagues have taken a vital step in our understanding and ability to achieve this sort of stuff, at least as it relates to the moon, Mars is next. I'm hoping, <laughs> but exactly. you know, this is this is uncharted territory in the most fundamental way you can look at it. And to me, that it just gives me goosebumps to think of this kind of science. And I'm so happy you all put in the effort and the the years of effort, I should say, to to make this a reality.
1: Well, thanks for your comments. Uh, they're deeply appreciated, and um, I I and we identify with that that's, <laughs> Good. That's part of what part of what a big part, I would say, of what makes this part of plant biology such a such a fulfilling endeavor.
0: <laughs> so if we went back to young Robert Furl, pre-PhD and, and, and said, hey, one day you're going to grow plants in moon regolith, would you ever have believed it?
1: No way. Not even close.
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, here you are. And I thank you so much for taking time to tell us about this. And I speak for everyone listening, I hope, and saying, keep it up. This is incredible. If people want to find out more about this work and continued work of both what's going on in your lab and the lab of all of your colleagues, where do you recommend they go searching?
1: Uh, just just Google space plants. And the there's a, there's a nice, vibrant, and collaborative community of plant scientists that that are all very interested in taking what we know about plant biology around the world and translating it into our ability to colonize the solar system. Incredible. Yep.
0: Well, Dr. Farrell, thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep it up. Really love hearing from you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy, and uh, yeah, take care.
0: Awesome. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and go botany. (laughs) Bye now. Bye. How about that? (sighs) I can't imagine the weight of dealing with such important samples, and I'm really happy that they had the bravery to do it. So here's to Dr. Robert Farrell and his colleagues for taking the next step in our understanding of how plants are going to perform in truly novel environments. If you're enjoying shows like this and you want to make sure that they have a future, consider supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash plants. For a small monthly contribution, you get wonderful kickbacks, but most importantly, you help keep the show up and running. I literally could not be doing this without all of my patrons that support the show every month. So thank you to all of them. It truly makes a difference. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book some of our customizable merch and stickers, and all of those links can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.